Welcome to the IME Community Podcast, where self-love is your superpower to achieve your weight and life goals and make your mark in the world. Your host is Dr. Carla, activist MD. If you're a teen who's looking to revolutionize your health and can't wait to follow your dreams, welcome to the IME Community. So welcome to the IME community uh, YouTube video and podcast. I am so excited today because I have an amazing guest, Dr. Jillian Rickert, who is an oral medicine specialist, and she is also a research fellow in radiation oncology. Um, so why is she on the um, YouTube video and podcast for IME community, you may ask? I became obsessed with her and her writing on KevinMD.com, and I've posted some articles on KevinMD.com, and so I follow along closely. It's the largest social media platform for physicians, and I... Uh, I have to say like the first article that I saw of yours was around um, I, leaving your um, career to save your life, um, you risk your career to save your life. And so I really resonated with that one. And then I, I had looked at your site and all the articles you wrote for Kevin MD and the, saw the ones on eating disorder and how open you were and it's National Eating Disorders Awareness Week and thought you would be an incredible guest to help the IME community members, parents, um, and also physicians and all of us to do a better job moving forward with eating disorder awareness. And I do a lot of work on diffusing confusion around these issues. So I think this is gonna be super helpful. Also, we're talking about eating disorders. That means we're talking about mental health. That means that you know this comes with a warning that if you feel, um, triggered, you have, um, it's bringing up some, some negative um, thoughts for you, then I want you to make sure that you um, maybe talk to someone, um, get the help that you need. Obviously, we're having a discussion and talking about her personal story. This doesn't take the place of going to your doctor, of um, if you're a teen, talking to your parents about issues. If you're a parent of a teen and you're concerned about your teen, please go get the help, go to your physician, get to a therapist, get a full evaluation. The earlier, the better with, um, with eating disorders and mental health issues. And we're seeing an increase of those um, with the pandemic. So with that, that's a lot. I'm so excited. So I'm gonna have um, Dr. Rigger go ahead and introduce yourself some more and tell us a little bit more about why you wrote your articles and why you're so excited to talk to IME community. Yeah, and thank you, Dr. Lester. First of all, I'll say with the IME community, uh, I had the opportunity to engage in some of the resources that are out there that you've provided, and they just are so valuable to me. They are messages I wish I would have heard years ago. And so my support 
for what you are doing is just so profound. And I really appreciate the opportunity to be meeting with you today. Oh, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yay. That, that makes me like kind of emotional to be honest. Well, it just is so true. I think in, we, I mentioned too, is that message that you had on Valentine's day is a message I would strongly advocate all to listen to. And that's part of my story is some things that were said when I was younger contributed to me having some shame about my body. And I also had a lot of anxiety and paired the two things that were paired together was in order to address some of the shame I was having with my body. I started to restrict some of my food and Mm -hmm. I thought that's what we should do because we were, this was in the nineties and diet culture still is very pervasive in our culture today. And it was strong in our culture back then. So it was given to me as a solution to make me feel better. And that solution ended up revealing that I had a predisposition to developing a pretty severe eating disorder. And um, that to me, when I started to have issues with my body, uh, we'll talk a little bit about the BMI scale. Mm-hmm. I was at the higher end of the BMI scale. And so when I started to restrict my uh, intake, it was seen as a positive thing. And I'm having a deep problem with that now because I see how it was never a positive thing and how diet culture really feeds into our vulnerabilities. And I had a lower self-esteem and self-worth and how I was using diet culture's rules to try to make myself feel better and why that's flawed. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to the BMI scale, um, I had problems with disordered eating for a very long time before it was formally diagnosed. And there were obstacles that were created by diagnostic criteria, having some BMI um, aspects of it. And there have been changes, but not enough. In, a, in those diagnostic criteria. And what I feel is needed is to make them so that people can be diagnosed earlier and get interventions earlier and have this awareness earlier so that they don't have so much suffering um, because it's created profound impacts on my life as I have lived with anorexia for quite a long um, time in my life. Some aspects of it, we're very, you know, pretty well managed and then other aspects were life-threatening. and. And no, there's no spectrum between there where somebody isn't worth getting help. So I don't want someone to say, well, I'm not life-threatening and I don't deserve help. No, that's not the point. The point is you deserve help the moment you think you've got a problem. Very helpful. And I think that, um, you know, the power of you sharing your story and, and I'm sure we can talk a little bit more about how healing that is when you've gone through, I mean, this is trauma. Mm-hmm. This is absolute trauma. And you use the word suffering. And it is, it is suffering. Like, even if it's not to the point, like you said, a physical internally in your mind, mentally, emotionally, psychologically, you are suffering minute to minute. If there's disordered eating and, and like you said, it's, it's a control issue is one of the things you could control, but it was triggered by we don't physicians we don't like to talk about it especially a lot of us who've been working on like i've been working on the childhood obesity epidemic for almost 20 years of my career and i started a nonprofit and i did a lot of work around bmi bmi stands for body mass index so it's a measure of weight over height it's just one measure and it's not a a measure for all bodies it's not helpful we're finding out that there's been a lot of harms and it sounds like um 
your story resonates with a lot of other um, patients and people I've heard, and I'm on TikTok all the time, so they share with me, is that just that one trigger mm-hmm. in someone who has a predisposition can be pretty powerful to sending you down that path. Can you talk more specifically about the harms of BMI? Yeah, the harms of BMI. So there was an article by Dr. Kara Pepper. She's an internal medicine uh, physician. And she wrote about how BMI was created and how it's flawed, it's biased, it's really doesn't encompass a good parameter for health. Mm-hmm. And it was used in a way that um, there's some aspects of it that was used for profit, meaning that if you create a BMI where all of a sudden people are considered overweight, well, that creates a profitable impact for the diet industry that might be able to sell diet products. And, um, it, and just investigating a little bit more about the reason why we're continuing with BMI scale. Um, there was some mention in that article about how it impacts provider and physician uh, reimbursement. Mm-hmm. And, and it's doing that, it's such a problem for patients that are having a self-worth that's invested in that BMI number and the BMI, if you're a very muscular person, you weigh more and that doesn't, in, like the BMI just doesn't show adiposity. And then, and then there was also, um, when we think about weight in general, if it's used for a correlate of health, well, we don't see all of the health, the weight related health problems in people of weight. So it's not a direct correlate to weight. And when I was very malnourished, even before my weight dropped a lot, I was not healthy. And I'm sorry, my dog is uh, trying to invite himself. So we'll apologize that he's inviting himself to the Zoom call. But Love it. Um, <laughs> if you hear him, just know he's a, he's a great dog that wants to be on camera. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, for, for the weight, I think there's just so many problems with the way that our culture talks about weight and creates such shame for people. And if you have a person that comes in and they're struggling with weight and they're using food as an emotional coping mechanism and you shame them for their weight, oftentimes what we see is that people will start to avoid the doctor because they feel like they're going in and being shamed. And then you go home, you isolate. And if if food is bringing you a sense of comfort and you're being shamed for your body and you go home and you find food comfortable, well, you might start to gain weight and that's completely normal. Um, but it's also creating the outcome that the doctor is trying to avoid and trying to, you know, uh, address by giving these dietary guidelines and exercise guidelines and weight guidelines. Yeah. And I think that, you know, it's so hard for us, as we know, in medicine to admit that we've gotten it wrong. That's Mm -hmm. one thing I really wanted to do with IME community, because when I started, I started a nonprofit called Teach a Kid to Fish, and the vision was creating community solutions for children's health. And we really made a commitment to focus on positive messaging. And so it was like, do this, you know, not focus on weight, but focus on health, focus on family. Um, But even within that, like we used BMI for um, measures. I worked with a partner um, with the schools 
to um, look at BMI like surveillance data. Mm -hmm. And I think the data was is so misused because it looked at like um, the associations almost were like cause and effect. So we looked at, you know, it was all de-identified, but, you know, at school, too, that's another huge trigger for people. And um, and then all those measures were reported So the schools that had a higher percentage of pre and reduced lunch had um, children overall who were um, having. Um, uh, higher BMIs, um, more a uh, higher percentage of minority students. And then my nonprofit, um, that was a partner who did that work. And then they were drawing the association to get funding to, and I'm not saying they haven't done some good work with this, but it's also like to get funding to address, um, you know, wellness efforts, which should be there anyway. Like, I mean, <laughs> we should have access to healthy foods and, and nutrition education and fun PE and recess and all the things in schools anyway, we shouldn't have to fight for the funding, but they were associating it with standardized test scores, mm -hmm. which it's like, oh, that's what the actual board thinks about. That's where, you know, is how schools get their funding. So everything, like you said, like in healthcare, and even with schools, it's tied into, but we, I had a grant through the American Academy of Pediatrics called Community Approach to Child Health. And we did focus groups with the cultural centers and the school nurses and surveys of physicians. And we asked specifically about BMI. And um, the thing is for me too, is like, it's just not that helpful. Exactly. It's, it's not helpful. It's not, I mean, look at the data and then let's hear the harms. It's, it's not doing anything. Yeah. And it's, it's not only benign, right? It's not only no. not doing anything. Like you said, the harms is what we're really capitalizing here because when Kara writes about it, you know, it's, it's very clearly that there's, it's frivolous in a lot of ways. And then for me, I just remember so much suffering when I used it as a validation of my worthiness for treatment for an eating disorder. And when my weight was higher, that suffering was even more profound for me because people couldn't see it. And then when they could see it, I was so far gone mentally that I was then needing to be medically stabilized rather than work on the mental health that problems that I had developed. Mm -hmm. And, and then insurance becomes a huge problem. So not only prolonged suffering, you have inadequate access to treatment, and then you have inadequate time in your treatment because I was needing to be medically stabilized. And then by the time your insurance, you know, runs out, then you, you're right at that point where you really need that mental health treatment. And then you might lose that insurance support because one, you may no longer qualify for the diagnostic criteria that they were using to say, oh yeah, well, we will give you that insurance reimbursement, or you just might have used all the insurance, which has happened to me uh, mm -hmm. when I was, you know, needing it for medical stabilization. And so once I was really at a point where I could accept mental health treatment, that was becoming out of pocket. And that is such a financial toxicity. Mm -hmm. And it created such a stress on the family that was um, I felt so guilty because mm -hmm. I knew it was a very costly, uh, medical condition and, and the family didn't understand it. And I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what eating disorders are. Wow. So it was like kind of layering of your suffering mm -hmm. dealing with the 
the logistics of just even getting to treatment. Yeah. And I, I still feel that I was fortunate because I did fit a stereotype, mm-hmm. but it allowed me to have a perspective. I see the people that aren't, and I hear them and I know I'm not hearing a very large subset. I know a lot of people are being silenced by all these biases and feeling like I don't fit what we see on media as this person with an eating disorder, which I, you know, wrote one of my articles is like, you can't tell who has an eating disorder. It looks like absolutely anyone. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it's underrepresented, right? So anytime we see in Hollywood, it's usually a very similar type of a person that is casted as a person with an eating disorder. And so because I fit that stereotype in the beginning stages of my treatment, I got the help, but then I also felt that privilege and then could see how the contrast when I would hear it from others that were never able to access help or never found that they were worthy of help. And then as an adult, I had the opportunity to see the other perspective being that I was in the military and I had an insurance that was not accepted by the care that I needed. The hospitals didn't even give me an intake assessment because they said, you have this insurance. We do not accept it anywhere on your list. You could have great insurance as your top but if you have this insurance anywhere on your list, we're not going to even evaluate you. And that created such a moral injury of even, cause I'm on at this point in healthcare, I am a physician and I have that problem where we have to treat people according to their insurance sometimes. And like you are putting a price on someone's life because of one, their socioeconomic status, their insurance access, and that's completely unacceptable. And so fortunately I'm seeing some more accessible resources for individuals that have eating disorders. So I am delighted to hear that there are free resources out there that are supportive. Um, And I say it that way because not only are they free and uh, that supportive aspect is very important because for people suffering with eating disorders, there can be a lot on the internet that is not helpful. And that if you, have, you know, very, very active in an eating disorder can be really that triggering or just extremely harmful by what the messages are conveying. Yeah, I find that too. Um, and, um, one of the things that I try to do is, you know, find people who are, who are really good ambassadors for healthy messaging. And there's some awesome, people out there. And then there are also a lot of, um, what I see is like wellness perfection, um, still like all or nothing. And I think like, instead of, uh, you know, when a coach on social media, uh, to really monitor your inputs and maybe you don't have to go like all or nothing and be so dramatic about taking a cleanse or, getting off of it, but it's just be mindful of it. Decide with some intentionality, like what are your triggers? How are you going to show up? Where are you going to put your attentional focus? Who you're going to follow? I mean, it's super important, especially on apps like Instagram, I think. I mean, Mm -hmm. TikTok, I know has some really like underworld. It's fun, but it also has some like underworld, like very subterranean, harmful um, creators and messaging. But I think on Instagram is where I really see this kind of like that perfectionistic um, 
piece of it. Uh, my daughter and I actually wrote up a viral TikTok study for our oh. Canada MD. We talked, uh, the title of that article was called Medical Gaslighting due to weight, weight stigma and bias is harmful, a viral TikTok study, because it was my first viral post on TikTok. And there was um, a guy on there is a community, super funny, I follow him. And he, he does these videos like, um, why is, why is my neighbor always like, you know, can I borrow your lawnmower? It's like, and anyway, he has a shtick and it's fun, funny, hilarious. And so his shtick for that day was why are doctors always like, um, everything looks good. Just watch the weight. Yeah. And he's like, doc, this isn't a joke. You know, this isn't a time for cracking jokes. I got a low grade fever and chills. And he was obviously worried he had COVID. He's at high risk for it. Um, and the doctor's just saying, just watch the weight. And so I, I kept going back to it and I was like, you know what? That's like gaslighting. I mean, he's not helping him at all. The doctor and, um, is just like weight, shame and blame and not addressing his chief complaint. And so then I did a duet post and I said, this is medical gaslighting and is very dangerous during COVID. And I woke up the next day to all these views, but there were 800 comments on that post. Oh my goodness. And so we, my daughter and I decided to mine those. We had to throw a ton of them out and she's a college student and um, she's pre-med and journalism. So um, anyway, we started to notice the trends, but the eating disorders, um, delayed diagnosis or people who were really sick, like one woman's like, I literally had lost 70 pounds. I thought I was dying. And my doctor patted me on the back and said, keep doing what you're doing. Great job. I mean, story after story, it was really a very common theme that you're saying. And it's, it's extremely dangerous. Yeah. And I just wrote an article. I, I titled it and the abuse, it might get changed, but that's exactly what it's about is the relationship we are creating by sending these messages is if you dissect it, like an abusive relationship that you'd want people to get out of uh, if you heard it between two people. And it's that abusive relationship we have with ourselves. Yeah. Once we start neglecting ourselves of nutrients, once we start saying really harmful, controlling things, we start to control our body size. And we say there's these demeaning things to ourselves. And where does that come from? Where, how is it perpetuated? And how I see it, and as I took an outside look of like diet culture, what the messages look like, how they really capitalize on our vulnerabilities and insecurities, mm -hmm. I wonder who profits, just like BMI. I wonder yeah. like who profits from us believing this message. And then that anger, and when I think about who profits and how does it affect us? Because diet culture, just looking at the commercials that used to run my life as somebody that just would want to follow every single rule of whatever was recommended by a diet. I wanted to follow all the rules. And at some point there's such a competing amount of rules by diet culture. Cause if you follow one diet, you can't really follow all the rules of the other. They conflict mm -hmm. and they say, you're not supposed to follow all the diets. You're fine. The one that works best for you. But I'm like, but you know, if, this is like, it's all restrictive in some way. And even if it's not calorically restrictive, then you're restricting a food group. And how does that impact you? Yeah, I, well, I can tell you, I think that the, you know, the food addiction business model is super powerful. So big tobacco took over big food and they use neuromarketing tactics and then the diet industry 
So the, the, I just recently did a B, uh, body positive Institute training, which is an awesome organization. It's a nonprofit. It's beautiful. There's like five components to becoming body positive. And the first one is to reclaim health and it's, you know, and, and leave weight out of it. But they talk about, and I never thought about it, that the reason that is, you know, we don't want to give up our pursuit of thinness because we don't want to give up our pursuit of thin privilege. So mm. it's like, I'm sure that you thought like, oh, this relief of my suffering is just around the corner with just this one how, or this one thing, you know? So it's like external. And then it just became so internalized. And so my thing that I'm coaching a lot on now is like, it's okay. Like the first step is to permanently cancel diet culture, but how it comes up physically for you and recognizing it, all you have to do is have some self-awareness and there's nothing going wrong. And, and then you can soften up, but you, you don't, my whole philosophy is let's meet in the middle because people think if I give this up, then I'm, then all hell's going to break loose and I'm going to be where I don't want to be. And I can't ever be um, healthy. And then that, you know, like fat phobia gets in there. And so it's like, you can be in the middle, you, you can get what you want. You can have your wonderful, beautiful, magical life and be healthy and live like internally. And, and just, it can be, it can be a great life you know? Um, yeah. And I would love to touch base on what I lost when I went and I tried to lose weight because I lost, I was so obsessed with it that I lost time with friends, with family. I lost the opportunity to be free with my food. I lost the opportunity to enjoy sports because I would quit sports. I loved, which I would strongly recommend if someone's feeling like they want to quit a sport they love for any other reason than like they stop loving it. Mm -hmm. I want them to question and to stick with it because that perfectionistic tendency is I'm not the best. So I should quit. No, but I was having fun, you know, and I so regret those, that the decisions to quit the sports that I really enjoyed because when I reflected back on them, it was a lot of eating sort of driven thoughts, a lot of perfectionistic thoughts mm -hmm. and perfectionism, just like weight loss was praise. And, and I thought I needed, I was disciplined and I was perfectionistic. And I thought that was to be valued. And what I learned is it created such a fixed mindset of if I'm not perfect, I'm not worthy. And in trying to recover from all those messages in my life, you have that growth mindset, you know, it's not win or lose, it's win or learn. And I love that. And I'm going to do something because I enjoy it. I may not be the best at it and that's fine. Mm -hmm. You know, I hear parents today, they're really upset because their kid is messing up on the, you know, on the, in the basketball court or things like that. And they're not listening to their coach and they're mad and they're like, why aren't you listening? And, you know, it's, well, let's take a step back and, and, and listen to the child. So I heard your coach say, Hey, plant your feet before you shoot, but I see you're running and still shooting without playing your feet. Can you tell me more about that? Not, Hey, your coach said that and you're not doing that. Well, yeah. You know, then you're, I would personally, my, my personality would, I'd want to quit because I can't do anything right, you know, and that's kind of what I did was like, I would have, I was in basketball and they had plays and my, my team wasn't doing the plays exactly right, according to what the manual said. And I was so flustered by that, that I just could no longer stand it. And like, well, you know, we were still, still making the baskets and it was working out well. So there was obviously 
a modified plan that worked out just fine. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I would have changed, you know, growing up. I certainly, I certainly would have just enjoyed those sports. And that's now as an adult, I can choose, you know, I think as an adult, we have to be very intentional about getting back into that play. Mm-hmm. And, and I've learned like the things I regretted doing, such as quitting those sports. Well, I can feel that regret. And one of my great friends just taught me about regret and how it kind of shows us what we value most. And I was like, Oh, I thought I would never say I regretted anything. Cause I mm-hmm. thought you should never regret anything. Yeah. But, but when she gave me that permission to regret something, I was like, yes, I do regret quitting a sport that I loved because I was ashamed of my body size or because I was ashamed that I wasn't the best at it and never saw myself being the best as a five, four individual, you know, basketball, volleyball. I thought in my head that I could never be the best because I was too short. And I'm like, there's many people that are my height that are really great at those sports. What was I thinking? And I loved them. And I, I love that. Have you heard Dan um, King's interview with Brene Brown on her podcast during the lead? Um, Yeah. So she, my friend just said, you got to listen to this and it's all about regret. His new book is about regret. I don't know if your friend had. That's the one. Yeah. Yeah. That's the one. Regret, regret is your greatest teacher. And so I was really internalizing that this week too, and being like, oh, it's kind of a relief too. It's like, okay, I learned so much from that. It's okay to say that. It's okay to say that. It's, you know, and I love her, um, you know, perfectionism isn't healthy striving. It's not showing up as your true authentic self, but those are patterns we learn. I mean, when you're young and you did. So do you have ways that you, um, because I really struggle with perfectionism too in that pattern, because it's an addictive obsessive pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and, and along the way, there have been things that we have achieved because of it. So it's, it can be hard. Sometimes we just look at that evidence and we think if we let it go, then we won't achieve things unless we motivate ourselves with attachment to negative self-talk and our inner critic. And to truly believe and internalize that we can be compassionate and kind with ourselves and get what we want in life. Um, but I've had to really do a lot of work on that for myself and I can recognize it when I'm in that space and I get like my jaw gets clenched. Mm-hmm. I feel like instantly like heavy here in my forehead. I feel instantly depleted emotionally. Like I, t- I get tired and then things take longer and they're yeah. not fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, what do you do to try to disrupt that having the awareness that that's what's going on in your body and it's going to come up in your body. And then how do you kind of disrupt it to transition, create a pause and then transition to something else without spending time, like convincing yourself. <laughs> yeah. I think naming it, you know, it's, uh-huh. it's certain perfectionism, that procrastination and that desire, I get so anxious and we ruminate about things because we're afraid we're going to get it wrong. And there are many times now I'll push myself such as a website. I have a new, I have a coaching site website where I blog. And the first time I made it, it was, I mean, it, it, I know I'm not the most uh, professional when it comes to it, 
but it had a purpose for me. It was my outlet and I loved making it and I wanted it to represent me. And I'm like, well, I don't want something that's put together well from a technological standpoint, because that's not me at all. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it just was like, okay, the purpose of this website is to at least allow people to know who I am and to have an outlet for my blog. And if I put that purpose rather than like anything more substantial from a business aspect, and that allowed me to just put it out there. And I have allowed that um, website to evolve many times. I've recreated it many times. And I love to see how it has grown in terms of the way that I've changed it, how it looks more like me and how I can measure my ability to just change certain aspects of my website that make it look more professional. And it makes me feel proud, even if, you know, if I'm the only one people that have website experience can be like, wow, that's not really that great of a website. I'm like, well, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not a website designer. I'm a, I'm so much other, other things than that. And I'm not a website designer. And I think knowing that we don't have to be perfect in all the other roles because great, there's somebody that is really great at that. And we can honor the different skills of everybody. And so when it came to perfectionism, and that negative self-talk, I always, like you said, take that pause, step back, name it. How is this serving me? And then um, have that whole growth mindset. And I always like that, like I mentioned earlier, is that uh, if I don't win, then I learn and fail forward. And don't be afraid of failure. And I actually have grown to appreciate failure and be proud of myself for trying something new. I'm like, holy cow. And that rigidity, I actually just became so tired of being so restricted in my life. Mm -hmm. I'm like, this life is so short, you know, and when we deal with a lot of things that prove that, whether it's loss of someone close to us, uh, we talked about my own mental health struggles Mm -hmm. where, you know, I, I looked at life and I had to recommit to it every single day. And I, I still do that every single day. And what do I want to get out of this day? And where is perfectionism holding me back? And I'll send an email or there will be an article that dur- during the edit process, there'll be a word that came out. And of course my perfectionism is like, oh, and I'm like, but you know what? The content's still there. The message is still there. It didn't detract from the message that I was wishing to convey. Mm-hmm. That's so powerful. I love and my it. dog is in a perfect example of this, right? I'm like, oh my gosh, the perfectionism is in me right now is being frustrated with my dog who's making all these noises and like but at this point it's like well people now know me as the mom of this dog that comes on to most podcasts and interviews and yeah every time right i love it what's the name of your website where can people connect with you uh jillianrigertcoaching.com okay awesome so are you coaching physicians or I am a coach through MD Anderson, my institution. So I made the website so that individuals that get paired or have the option to work with me can learn a little bit more. And and so eventually I will open up more of the floor to coaching. It It will most likely be, I don't think it will necessarily be catered to physicians. I think people just like our conversations, you know, is really trying to get in touch with themselves. I am in Martha Beck's Wayfinder Life Coaching Program. Yeah. And so it's, I'm hoping just to help people to get 
into their own authentic self and to really express to the world their gifts because we try so hard to fit into other people's molds of what we should be. And I've learned in my life that following other people's visions for myself was extremely detrimental. And that has allowed me to show up in my athletic gear now, what makes me comfortable and just learning to be me. And then I think surrounding myself with people that are doing the same, you know, that aren't always so perfectly put together and things like that. Because what I've also learned is often when we have to have that external appearance of being well put together inside, it might, it might be a reflection of us not feeling really well put together inside. And it's not always true, but I just say that as, you know, when we see Instagram and when people want their lives to look perfect, take it with a grain of salt. Um, oftentimes what I hear is those people that express themselves perfectly on Instagram are really struggling and suffering. Mm -hmm. um, and you'll see my Instagram is certainly not a picture perfect. It's, I, I don't even know how to use Instagram to be honest. And it was one uh, social media platform I actually stayed off of for a long time because in the news, it was so known for potentially setting people up for eating disorders. So I, as my own self-care, didn't go on it. Mm -hmm. And I'll post quotes and hope to kind of be a person that negates any need to be perfect just by posting my perfectly imperfect Instagram posts. Yeah, I think that's so powerful. And people, you know, I did, I posted a stupid TikTok video yesterday and it was, but I thought it was super funny. Mm -hmm. And I remember showing it to my husband. He's like, okay, I hope people get it. And I'm like, I don't care if they do. Yeah. Um, I'm having fun and it didn't take me but a couple minutes and I don't really care. <laughs> and uh, that's a gift. So I think that's absolutely incredible. And um, okay. So you, your article was eating disorders thrive in secrecy. So let's talk about it starting with BMI. Yes. And so what are the um, specific harms of keeping, keeping it secrets? So parents worry, doctors worry, teachers worry about saying anything because of the fear of causing more harm. Um, and also parents obviously feel like maybe they had um, caused it or they feel guilt and shame. Maybe they grew up and had, and they're very fixated in diet culture. So it, it is a very taboo thing. What advice do you have for parents and doctors and teachers for how to approach these conversations with teens? Yeah, first, I think just giving them self-compassion because we were given messages that were not healthy for us and that contributed to our own beliefs about weight stigma. And to feel any sort of guilt or shame towards accepting that information is not helpful. So let's forgive ourselves because we were inundated with these messages we may have created harm for ourselves. And as we heal and set the example, I think that is a really great thing for kids is to see the example of somebody that is gonna resist diet culture and is going to have a very self-compassionate outlook and the way that they talk about themselves. Because as a kid, you know, I saw diet culture, you know, I saw the shame that people felt and it brought me a lot of anxiety mm -hmm. and um, people do say the wrong things. I should say wrong, quote unquote, wrong yeah. people do mm -hmm. things. 
And as a person with an eating disorder, the beginning stages, people walked on eggshells to not say the quote unquote wrong things. Nothing was ever right, especially with a person that might have a brain that's taken over by an eating disorder. It can have a lot of irrational thoughts associated with that. Okay. And so I think the silence was hard because my thoughts will take over and they'll put words to the silence. Mm -hmm. If people say something to me now that might not be helpful, then that's an opportunity for me to use my voice and that is empowering. And then people, people may not get it. And I think that's what I've accepted is that I will use my voice. People may not get it, but that's, it's not for them. It's for me. Because when I was silenced, the eating disorder would take over. Like one of the articles talks about what was mentioned to me is how are you doing? Which was a great question. You don't look anorexic was not a helpful comment to me. That's a major trigger. You said, yeah, it was, and it, it just is, is so much deeper too. It just is really showing that eating disorders are so misunderstood. Mm -hmm. And the more we hear from the voices, this was, I had an opportunity to meet with Dr. Uh, Poe and be on his pockets. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we said, where would we look for the, you know, information in the scientific literature or things like that to really show more information for people that are looking to get uh, improved evidence-based information about eating disorders and what they look like. I'm like, it's not in the scientific literature. It's in the testimonials, but it's in those testimonials that do not yet feel they can speak up because we are often silenced by feeling misunderstood or shamed. And so I think me speaking up and hoping that that will encourage others to tell their story and to not be so alone um, because there were some groups that I went to where it was eye-opening for me to hear stories, to hear the biases that people were getting against themselves. And so being in that space where people did educate me has helped me to try to advocate so that they can feel safe to continue to use their voice and to put more faces and voices to what an eating disorder, how it shows up and what it means for a person. That's so powerful. So I think, you know, the message of not looking for the scientific data. Also, it it's not hard to see that you know, just look around, talk to probably one person uh, in your life and you know that we, we've gotten it wrong. So what's wrong with saying that? What's wrong with saying, hey, we've gotten it wrong and we can do better. And the power of stories and the, you said, you know, like using the power of your voice when you're being silenced or when somebody says something that isn't helpful to you and potentially is harmful is an opportunity for you to create a boundary and the boundary is for you. It's not to really teach them, let them be who they are. We can't always control it and get in their lane and convince and solve. And I see that a lot on social media where a lot of people who are in like, especially like larger bodies or are maybe misunderstood, um, they spend their time trying to convince the haters, trying to convince the trolls. And it's like, you're wasting your time. Lead Absolutely. your life. Like say yeah. I have a boundary statement. I'm doing a series on bullying and, mm. and weight bullying. And um, there's the uh, a PhD who, or actually she's a social worker who does a lot of on bullying and um, helping teens. And she calls them bully bands. So what's like a you know, like a neutral kind of feedback statement that could be strong that, 
you know, you have to do some mental rehearsal, some pre-visualization yeah. to strip that out because so it's easily accessible statement for you. So I, I love how you're talking about that because it sounds really similar. Yeah. And it's for bullies. I always think bullies. I've been bullied by adults and in the workplace and you're bullied and you're, I just think, I'm sorry you feel that way because it's usually a reflection of their own insecurities, their own biases, their own pain. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's, you know, it's when you do not react to that bully, that's like the best defense mechanism because often it, they stop and they may not stop, but it's, you know, you stand up for yourself, you advocate in a way that is, it could be as simple as, I'm sorry, you feel that way, you know, is mm -hmm. say something about my body. Oh, I'm sorry. You know, I'm sorry you feel that way, you know, and however that shows up, but those simple things is I've always I've never felt and seen a bully or heard a bully that I think, wow, that's a confident person. Confident people don't rip other people to shreds. Confident people can say, hey, I'm succeeding. You can succeed too, because success is not, a, there's no scarcity of success. And often bullies will say something, you know, that it makes you feel like they need to knock you down in order to feel like they can lift themselves up. Yeah, but we can all lift each other up. The sky is so high, we can all shoot for it and mm -hmm. and bring everybody. There's no like there's no reason we have to start putting people down in order to rise. Awesome. And I think the thing is like it, it's like the gaslight tango mm -hmm. um where bullies are like gaslighting and they they're they're kind of like you know it's a power they're trying to establish a power divide and they want to control the narrative and they have a manual for their victim and and they're just weaponizing whatever it is that unfortunately in our society we have it's easy to we feel this entitlement to comment on people's bodies yeah it's, it's absolutely insane i think that yeah. is a big bully and i also think for people that are struggling with eating disorders, what became interesting to me was in the early stages, it was apparent to me I was different. And I had, I was like really struggling. I remember I was like, no, I can't relate to anybody. But then as I grew up, it was more gray because of the disordered eating that is normalized in society. So I'm like, well, everybody is, everybody. Everybody's see, messed up. <laughs> everybody's messed up. Yeah. So where do I fit? And then it's like, well, I, you don't have to compare yourself. I'm like, yeah, everyone's messed up and I'm struggling and need help, you know? And then what was hard for me is that not all eating disorder trained professionals are, you know, might be helpful for you. So if they're not helpful, it's not you necessarily, you know, it's like, it's not, you know, with my eating disorder, there were things that I couldn't trust what it was telling me. And I really needed somebody that I can trust. And it took me you know, a few tries took me many, many years. And I currently have people in my life that I trust to have insight and to reflect back on me, like what part of this is the brain that has the eating disorder in it? And what part of this is actually rational insight that I've gained from tapping into all the resources over the years. Mm -hmm. um, and then there were issues kind of with the gaslighting is when people do not understand eating disorders, for me as somebody with the restrictive, quite wanting to be, you know, small and voiceless. Well, I became very vulnerable to that. I wanted to people please. So then someone in a, a, a power or authoritative role in, it could be a place of helping um, 
and I, I love healthcare, and so I'm part of it, but there can be people that abuse that power. Mm -hmm. And it was feeling like gaslighting. I was ashamed. I was shamed by a dietitian for my anxiety about food in an eating disorder residential facility. Like they mocked me for the severity of my anxiety about food. And I just was like, and then I had an art therapist that said the wrong things about what an eating disorder, like, why are you even here? You'll just go out and do the same thing you do. And I said, those are not helpful comments because my eating disorder wants to believe I will never get better. So if you feed me that, I'm going to feel hopeless and, you know, and I need people that are going to support me kind of like an addiction, right? It might take multiple times to rid yourself of it or to have, you know, a quality of life that is part of your recovery journey. And I had to have people show me examples of what it might look like to live while recovering. Um, you know, I thought at some points that I needed to live, I needed to, to recover before I could start living. And that mm. what happened there is I spent so much time in treatment centers that it becomes so much more of your identity. And then as I moved away from those and cultivated more depth to my identity by being involved in other things that really showed me what I liked and, and that this eating disorder wasn't all that who I was, that was so helpful. Wow. I mean, I am so honored and so appreciative and grateful that you are willing to share this story because it's so helpful to me, but it's gonna, it's gonna be so helpful to anyone listening to this. So, um, it's, it's such a pervasive thing. People don't understand that. I had um, kind of more of a restrictive like control with food growing up and was always like known as the skinniest kid in my class except for one other girl, you know, like we were the smart skinniest girls. She was, it was, it was kind of a joke. And then I developed a weight. I mean, I gained weight, like, I don't know, in my forties, I guess. And I can tell you, like, I know why people don't want, want to go to that restrictive space again. So like, I luckily would never diet or anything like that. And I found um, life coaching and it really did help me out. And so I was able to create, you know, that self-compassion and really work on my mind. And it's like, well, it's really not about the food at all, you know, and stop using food to buffer. But if I had to choose one extreme or the other, oh my gosh, there's no question that I would choose the the permissive coping with food side of things, because I mean, physical discomfort, buying bigger clothes, you know, there's shame and judgment there. Um, and there's our society, but the brain, the, the harshness, the shaming, the restriction, the rigidity of being in a restrictive mindset with food and myself, um, that was so that that was that felt like suffering mm -hmm. yeah and that value shows up in so many different ways so i always think self-worth and self-compassion are the ultimate fight against eating disorders because i will not let myself treat myself poorly then i will not let others treat myself poorly um and i had a psychologist that said i've never met someone with an eating disorder that had a robust self-compassion or self-worth they were always usually suffering there mm -hmm. yeah and, and i also go ahead yeah, I was going to say, you know, the promise of what diet culture promises you, if, if you're smaller, you'll feel better. Yeah. 
I can tell you, you know, I succeeded, quote unquote, in all the things that diet culture told me were going to be markers of success. And I was absolutely miserable. And I was isolated. And I have developed chronic pain and osteoporosis at age 33. And mm -hmm. hormonal dysregulation. And, you know, things that if I, if I, you know, had just heard about them and you're threatened with, you know, your life ending for an eating disorder and all these physical ailments coming from an eating disorder. Well, when I was in the thick of things, I wouldn't have cared. This wouldn't have been a threat. It wouldn't have provoked me to change my behaviors because I would have been so deep in an eating disorder. But I just want to say the promises are empty. That feeling that anorexia is going to give you a control often spirals just out of control. Mm -hmm. It's isolating. And then to be smaller, like what that showed up for me is I didn't value myself enough to advocate for even compensation for my career. And I went many months working for free recently. And that's when I got sick of being sick. I started using my voice. Last year, I almost lost my life to anorexia again. And I was, this is where, this is where it all, I was just sick of being sick. And I thought me being silent is helping no one. I was silent because I didn't want anyone to take away my eating disorder. And if I start talking about it, there's a chance that I have to then be held accountable for my recovery. And a year ago, I wasn't ready for that, but I'm ready for that now. And I'm ready to bring everybody else that isn't able to speak with me and to give that platform that allows people to feel comfortable speaking because we need to hear from everyone. I'm just kind of at a loss for, I got a little emotional there. <laughs> um, I'm, by the way, I am just so grateful that you're here and that you're healing and you're intentionally healing and you found self-worth and self-compassion. And I always coach that, and I learned this from my coach, um, is that um, it's not a summit you're not going to reach a summit. It's showing up with daily intentional habit practice for yourself and checking in internally and letting go of the, um, excuse me, letting go of the um, external as much. I mean, we've achieved the things, it's okay. It's all, yeah. yeah. And that achievement, right? I have two doctorates and neither of them feel like I accomplished anything at all. And that's when I realized that that was never gonna bring me peace and gratitude for life. It's not what I find brings me value. I can publish a whole bunch of articles, but if they're not in what I find to be valuable to bring to the world, like that I'm very um, intentional about the types of messages I wanna bring to the world because it's not all about quality or quantity over quality. And, and that if, if you bring your low self-worth into all the degrees, you know, there's read between the lines, right? It's like the, the, the work is from the inside out. And what I learned also is that the more we get into places where the external validation is needed, which we often experience in school, academia, and in, in the workplace, it can really hone into our vulnerability to need that external validation, which can be very destabilizing. So the earlier we can feel our own internal validation, the more stabilizing and more fruitful our lives can become because we don't constantly feel in that unrest from like, will I ever be enough? And what I was thinking too, is one thing that I got in medical school was a psychologist for test taking. 
because as a perfectionist, test taking was miserable. I needed to get every answer right. And it made studying hard because I was afraid while studying, I wouldn't learn it all for the test. Yeah. And so if there's a kid that's having anxiety now or that learns differently than the way that the teacher is presenting and it looks like they're not performing well, I would just take a step back and say, what is this? How can we help them? Um, because I really wish that I would have had that access earlier. It would have helped me in my sports because mm -hmm. I have one friend that wants to be a, a mind or she will be wants to be, I know she's going to succeed in this. Mm -hmm. She's going to be a mindset coach um, for kids yeah. in sports. Awesome. Yeah. It's what I needed before I quit basketball, right? Yeah. No, you're doing it because it's fun. Right. And yeah. if you want to be better at it, then I'll help you with that. But I ran cross country and track in college and every start line, I wanted to quit because I was so afraid I wouldn't get the results that everyone expected of me. And when I was in high school, I, that stress broke me. And that's when I became medically compromised with anorexia because I was, I broke under the stress mm -hmm. um, and I couldn't handle it. And at that time, and so when you develop coping skills that help you handle it, then we don't have to rely on maladaptive coping skills like an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. So parents really, I mean, one thing that we, we have done, and I wrote a, a blog yesterday, I submitted it to the New York Times guest essay, we'll, guest essay, we'll see if they'll publish it, probably not, but uh, if not, I'll put it in Kevin MD on my blog. That's, that's, about, that's like, how I work. That's exactly. <laughs> oh, really? I've done that's that a few times. Yep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I'll cross my fingers for you. Okay, thank you. But um, so it's like Gen X parents were hyper competitive, over overachieving, everything on the external, definitely diet culture believing. Um, and we operate from a lot of fear and lack. And we believed all those things. Like if your kid doesn't get this score on the ACT and get into this certain school, or if they're on the team, they need to be the best one on the team, or, you know, they, sh they shouldn't try something unless it's, um, something that they can be great at. So we've really perpetuated this and well, fed it, created it in our children. Um, so I think, like you said, for parents to operate with some self-compassion, to be able to role model failure and not make it mean that you're a failure um, and and be willing to create these tools, like you're building up your own like resilience toolkit so that you have healthy coping mechanisms instead of, like you said, maladaptive ones. Um, so within the home, that's definitely something you can do. Do you have advice for like, if parents, like if they say, I have parents who I've coached who say, I watched him eat more than I thought was possible. Um, I think he's just overstressed um, this weekend, or I found junk, you know, junk food wrappers in her bedroom, and um, and and so they, I don't think they know how to approach it, and they're worried that their child has one. And like within the home, do you suggest them reaching out to their pediatrician or to a therapist, maybe in their community who specializes? in disordered eating or? I would start by, if I was that child, um, 
you know, in this might be it, depending on where the child is at, it might take a few times for the child to speak the truth because, um, they may feel ashamed. Um, but if I had a parent that was worried about me and was in a calm environment and just say, Hey, how are you doing? And listen to you, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and just do more listening and asking the child and creating a safe environment for that child to feel that they can speak up and ask for help when they need it. Mm-hmm. Um, because when we have a lot of assumptions and we bring our own biases to what they're doing, um, then it kind of detracts their ability to just speak their own truth. Mm-hmm. I will say though, during aspects of my eating disorder, I wasn't ready to admit that I had a problem. Um, so I would maybe not be fully truthful, but continuing to create that, not telling me, oh, you're lying, you know, or even when I was in recovery, I was told, I was like really excited. Like, oh yeah, I just did this one thing, which was like a very huge success for me in my eating disorder recovery journey. And I thought, oh, this is the time I'm going to recover. And I got the whole, oh, I've heard that before rather than that. Oh, you know, I've seen you fall a little bit and that wasn't a failure. It wasn't ground zero again. Like you didn't just reset and have to start all over from nothing. It's like, no, I had this opportunity to use that as another point of growth. Cause I say, Hey, I slipped up and look at me, get up again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just really creating that safe space in the family home. Excellent. So create a safe space, stay away from statements that are going to be harmful. Yeah. Uh, and- I would also investigate where those come from for the person, you know, and heal as a parent, Mm -hmm. give yourself permission to heal and be that model. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, if we aren't healing and we are telling a child one thing, but then this has happened to me, (laughs) you know, I don't want to say anything events, but because my, you know, family was very inundated with diet culture. Here I am trying to recover from an eating disorder and they're doing the opposite because they are still inundated with their eating the diet culture beliefs. Mm-hmm. And it was very hard for me because in eating disorder recovery with anorexia, it's you need to eat more. You can be distracted so that you have reduced anxiety with food. You need to exercise less. It's the exact opposite rules that diet culture had. And so if I'm trying to do this when my mind wants to tell me to do everything diet culture is saying, and I'm living in a place that's very obsessed with weight and body and oh you know it's your problem so I can still have this talk and it's not going to affect you because this is you know I can still live in diet culture that was very hard it further isolated me Mm -hmm. Um, I felt very hurt by that and not that I think that whole trigger thing is interesting because at the earlier stages what I noticed is people did walk on eggshells they didn't know what to say Mm-hmm. And I wasn't in a place in my eating disorder recovery that I could say, you can just say whatever you want. And if it's not helpful, then we can talk about it. So I wasn't able to use my voice. Mm-hmm. And that's where I'm at now is the triggers are still there. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't try to silence the triggers necessarily as I just kind of hear the person and think, where is this coming from? It's an opportunity for me to speak out and help us both. Just like that recent comment I had is, how are you doing? You don't look anorexic. Um, I had that opportunity. I felt my brain starting to want to spiral a little bit. And I just pause and I say, thank you for asking me how I'm doing. Um, You often can't tell how someone is doing with anorexia. I'm actually doing quite well at this point, but I just want to 
point that out because there are previous aspects or stages in my life where that comment could have been very harmful. That's such a huge learning experience and so gracious of you not to just say, hey, screw you. My brain wanted to say that my mouth, my mouth waited a second, but it is because you can appreciate, even if you are that person that wants to say that comment, because people will say, oh, you look so healthy. And they think it's a positive comment to make. And it's just, you know, I, I try to give people the benefit of the doubt. And I appreciate when people will say something because I know how it is. And I, um, you know, I work with cancer patients and when people are having a tough diagnosis, people might leave them because they have a hard time with the pain themselves. They are having a hard time coping with the other person's diagnosis. I've been there where I've been abandoned and I've been there when people lean in, when they say, wow, that seems like you're really struggling and I'm here for you. They're not giving me descriptions for what I need to eat. I'm just here for you. Mm-hmm. And what would that, what, how could that look like for you that is helpful right now? Um, that to me would have been helpful. Yeah. So that's super helpful information. It is a family issue. And so having um, your family members be willing to, you know, let's take a look at let's be a transparent, let's open this up, let's not be afraid, let's heal, let's see how we're contributing to it and how we can help. And it sounds like the power of your voice is extremely powerful all along. And whenever you're being silenced or silencing yourself or not heard by family, by parents, that could, that sounds to me, and I've learned a lot here, that that's one of the most, that's the biggest harm is the silencing because then it, you become isolated and then the eating disorder takes over. Yeah, and even things I would say when it comes to anorexia, I know I would say things to protect anorexia. And so I want families to know it's very frustrating for in my life. It's frustrating because I can tell, like you want to say things um, and just me observing, like, where does that come from? And so I think that's the hard part too, is because when my mind might be overtaken by anorexia, I might say things to protect the eating disorder more than what might be true to my own healing. So when you hear those, just recognize, oh, that might be that part of the brain that's impacted by the eating disorder. And then is where I would get professional support to navigate um, and to have those discussions from a person that's evidence-based eating disorder trained. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that um, I hear a lot of that controlling, you know, there are aspects of family-based care where it's important for families to take control when the person with an eating disorder is not able to make decisions that are in their own best interest. Mm-hmm. And so there were aspects in my life where my family did take control of my eating plan and they sat there and they made sure I had accountability. And I will be the first to say, if they were not there, there's a very low chance that I was in the right place to hold myself accountable. Mm-hmm. And that can swing too far where somebody becomes overly controlling and with an eating disorder that's controlling, then I might want to fight back by not doing what they're telling me to do. Yeah, that's where it takes that professional because that will look different for every person at different stages in their life. 
Mm -hmm. um, but I want to, you know, I'll be honest, right? Because I think that if we're prepared that, hey, this can be a brutal, it can sound brutal. It can be very frustrating. There can be a lot of anger um, that comes out. And, and for, for me, I saw that anger when I was a child, it came out, but then I learned later as an adult, like, oh, that's frustrating. That's what, it was anger coming out because that parent cared so much, they were frustrated. Mm -hmm. And I took the anger personally, like it was my fault, but really they were just angry and that's fine. Yeah. You know? and, and having a therapist for themselves would have been great, but that, you know, if a parent doesn't prescribe for mental health help, then, you know, whatever is helpful for them to also heal, knowing that the eating disorder impacts the whole family. That's super helpful. And I think that, you know, there's, there could be a real tendency, like you talked about before, like with an addiction or, um, you know, it can be like, you could develop real codependent, uh, relationships and the, um, parents, I mean, we all have this tendency as parents to put our children's achievements or failures, make it mean something about us as a parent. Mm -hmm. And so that's, you know, just, I think the power of awareness of recognizing, um, and, and creating a pause of like, here's the pattern, here's the tendency. I may have good intention, but it's like an urge or an itch. And if as parents, it's okay to like create a pause, it's better to not say anything at all, probably than if you don't have the right support in place. Yeah. And, and I think what's great too, is there are so many more resources out there and so many families that can offer support in a way. And again, I use that with trepidation because sometimes support groups for me have not been helpful. Mm -hmm. um, so making sure that people are all in that frame of mind that they all do want to, you know, have a quality of life outside of the eating disorder and that they're all on a very similar supportive mission um, and because the eating disorder aspect of my brain, it is, you know, it's very invalidating. And so if I'm in, in a group of people that might um, want that eating disorder to come out with a vengeance, then, you know, then I know, just like I know my boundaries with Instagram, I know I never have a, yeah. a Fitbit or something like that. It's just like, I know the things that would not lead me to very healthy behaviors and I have learned to create boundaries for that within my own behavior, within the things that I surround myself with. Yeah, that's super powerful for everything in life, right? All of your relationships. I coach teens on that. You know, I had a teen who got banned on not banned. Well, she got blocked on social media, on Instagram by a friend at school. And this friend, you know, she had this this teen I was coaching, she had no clue why she got blocked all of a sudden. So what do you do? You're going to defend yourself. You're going to convince, you're going to talk to all the other teens, try to figure it out, ruminate, you know, get mad, all the things. And then she had been doing great with her eating. And then she all of a sudden, you know, ate a bunch of junk food that night, which is like, so in the moment we coached around that, mm -hmm. uh, and you know, self-compassion and it's okay. And this is hard. And I can be kind to myself no matter what, no matter how anyone treats me. We also don't want to get in that other bully's lane and figure out, try to sit and figure out why she did that. It may have been an accident. We don't know. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. matter. 
she can be wrong about her. And then there's the next day that you have to go to school. So then you create the, you know, the boundary settings kind of neutral statements to coach yourself through that. And then there was discussion I had with her, like, are you sure you want to not block her? You know, like, I mean, is this truly a friend for you? She's not doing that. So there's like levels of conversations that you have to have with intentionality, like for yourself. Um, And if that person was a valuable friend, it's sitting in that moment. And like that person, it screams to me, they may need some emotional intelligence and some ability to cope with their own emotions because blocking is a very reactive response Mm -hmm. to something. Mm -hmm. So, and that will happen to the person that's being impacted by it over and over again in different ways, different ways in our lives where we just, somebody doesn't answer a text, email, phone call, we can make it mean what we want it to mean. Mm -hmm. It often doesn't mean the meaning we give it. And an email, you know, we might get a million emails and just missed it. It might've gone to our spam accident, a text message. Some people don't like text messages. This friend blocking, I had a story where I was in the hospital for my eating disorder and they took away my phone. And I had one of my best friends that was texting me. I didn't know in the hospital without my phone. And he blocked me on all social media accounts. And I'm 27 or eight at this time. Oh, wow. And I remember at first I took it personally, like, oh, well, you know, well, that hurt. But also that person didn't know where I was. And also I felt for him because I, you know, I went through a mutual friend. I'm like, can you just tell me on my phone? I could have just said, well, he's obviously not a friend, but he is. He was extremely valuable to me. Mm-hmm. And it just showed me that that's a little aspect of his life that maybe he can improve on is his reaction and to how he's interpreting messages from me. But if this person in other aspects, aside from this blocking, is seeing that this other friend is really creating insecurities in herself, well, then that's different than that one blocking being like, oops, like bad judgment call on my part, because forgiveness is another part of friendship. We don't always get it right. Yeah, true. Yeah, super helpful. So there are times when you like the the um, comment that somebody made in the workplace, you said, or it said, well, you, you look healthy and you don't look like you're struggling. And so you had a really great comeback. And then there are moments when you're just probably like, I don't want to deal with this. Mm-hmm. And you walk away and, and that's okay. Right. I mean, like, you don't have to be like fixing and solving the causes. Like you're there to show up, tend to the causes of your life, you don't cause, you don't control what you're doing is enough. And you're writing these articles. You're on this podcast. You're doing amazing things. You're, you're showing up for your health, for yourself is always enough. Yeah. And that comment, my reaction was for me, right? Cause I could yeah. feel in that moment, if I said nothing, then the eating disorder would have won mm-hmm. because it was going to make me feel lousy. It was going to invalidate my suffering, my struggle. Mm -hmm. and the torment because every day you know it's been 20 years living with the thoughts and behaviors I do and it's like it's still commitment it still can be exhausting Mm -hmm. and I can appreciate how far I've come even from a year ago and using my voice as part of it because I thought hmm if I use my voice now there will be people that have never seen me when I was super sick And then I was like, yeah, well, there are often instances where people never look sick and are suffering. And I know that. So I, here was my bias, right? Well, you know, we see, this is one thing I see for people that 
do have a before and after that, you know, are an eating disorder. And I would question them to refrain from putting those types of posts online mm-hmm. because they do invalidate the people and they reinforce that there's a weight associated with an eating disorder. I appreciate that they may feel very proud, but I also feel it's very invalidating and they may not, you know, they may not have analyzed it that far because if I'm showing a picture of when I was very ill, to me, the significance of that is to prove to others that I have a reason why I am somebody that can talk about where I'm at now. Oh, it's to say, you know, but then I don't have pictures from back then that I have made publicly available. I don't, I have a brain's worth of information about how my life has been living with an eating disorder. And, you know, I think it's more valuable when we can just talk about it rather than having to prove it in a way that's invalidating. Yeah. And it's your own journey, but Mm -hmm. people are so confused about weight and health. Mm-hmm. And they keep equating weight and health and feel entitled. And I think that that's super helpful information. I, I, I have coached some of the body positive creators a little bit, tried to, it's like, just decide what the point, like to what end are you showing up? Um, you don't want to spend your time defending yourself against these trolls Um, but you know, you do have important messages. What are the messages that are resonating that weight does not equal health that you, you don't know. the point is like, you don't, you have zero clue. Uh, We have no clue about anyone based on the external. We have no clue of their health. (laughs) Yeah. There's many reasons why people can be on the higher weight end of the spectrum and many reasons why people can be at the very low weight of the spectrum. And all are human beings that deserve self-compassion and love. Yeah. And it's none of no one's business. It's like a, you know, and it's also like just um, any diagnosis that's possible or any disease, you know, we just, we really, most of us don't even know what's going on inside our own bodies or what's going on, let alone having a random troll on the internet feel entitled to make that comment. I mean, a lot of it is just this real sexist, you know, patriarchal view of like, uh, you know, so the more that we can, of what, you know, this external standard is for like a woman's body um, should be. And it's, you know, it's racist, it's sexist, it's patriarchal. And um, anyway, I'm getting more empowered to not be silenced after this conversation. Awesome. Yeah. And, and, and just always remember that those trolls and the bullies, it's because they are insecure. Mm-hmm. They are insecure. It's them, not you. And it's the opportunity to say, you know, I'm sorry you feel that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So we talked a lot about parents and how to kind of like heal themselves and approach it in the home and then, you know, to get the support and um, things not to say. And then um, what about like for physicians? I think the main thing is let's get rid of BMI. (laughs) That's my target. Yeah. And I think that Dr. Uh, Kara Pepper would be on board with that. And yeah. it's a lot of the BMI. So things on my high priority would be BMI in general, but also for eating disorder in particular, how BMI and weight-based criteria are contributing to delays in access to care, access to care at all. They're okay. contributing to insurance coverage 
and support for individuals with eating disorders and their invalidating in, uh, individuals struggles with eating disorders. So that was something I was looking at the DSM-5 and like, mm -hmm. who's in charge of this? Who do I need to talk to <laughs> to express that, hey, my eating disorder didn't show up at BMI. So something is wrong with this diagnostic criteria. My eating disorder got me to the BMI that later got me diagnosed. Had we interviewed, intervened months, got mm -hmm. access to care months before that, would my life look different? I mean, how many people can we help? Because there are uh, some research I've read that if you can intervene and kind of really turn things around within the first year, yes, the outcomes are much, much better. And then with people that have lived similar to my path where I've had that chronic eating disorder, it's so much harder. And then as an adult, the access to care looks a lot different. One, I'm by myself to take off work to get treatment. And then the treatment needs improvement in the evidence-based approaches to eating disorder. There's so much work that needs to be done in eating disorder research to understand what, what is it and how to approach it. Mm -hmm. And there's some funding issues. So that's another thing that we need is in, improve funding for the people that are really dedicated to this research because they really do exist. And, and I have a few uh, individuals that I would really love to work with as part of my mission. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. awesome. Activist MDs, uh, mm -hmm. so cool. So eating disorders are mental health illnesses that don't have a certain look is the title of one of your articles that you posted on kevinmd.com. So people check that out. And that really fits into what we were just talking about. So let's get rid of BMI. Let's get rid of weight-based care um, and more research, more funding, lots of policy advocacy, it sounds like we'll need, um, and a coalition of people who are willing to never be silenced again when it comes yeah. to- Yeah, absolutely. The testimonials from the people so that we can really get a grasp of what eating disorders, you know, the more information from the more voices we can see, we can really get a better picture of who is impacted by eating disorders? What does it look like? Because without that information, we're working in very biased evidence. Mm -hmm. So if, if we continue to make conclusions based off the only voices that feel they can be heard, which may be the ones that can form previous beliefs on eating disorders, then we'll get the same conclusions. And mm -hmm. we know that those are flawed. So the more voices we can hear that dispel the myths about eating disorders, the better idea of what we have on the information that we need in order to improve our treatments. So awesome. So the power of stories mm -hmm. um, is, so doctors, parents, listen, 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 right? Like you said, um, and learn, be willing to listen, learn, change things up, be more innovative, be more agile, say you've gotten it wrong. It's okay. Get yeah, we got it wrong because we were taught it. And that's yeah. one thing I heard is that people, you know, um, we got it right when it comes to we trained that way. We heard that. So we we studied all the things that we were taught and we were taught it wrong. We got it right, but it was wrong. Oh, mm-hmm. Powerful. I want to ask you a question about um, how do you feel about, I mean, you touched on this a bit about not putting like before and after um, photos on uh, social media as a form of, you know, validation for speak, being able to speak out or credibility. Um, but I follow um, a young woman who she's in London, I think. And she seemed 
to be, she's on TikTok and she posts every day. She has anorexia nervosa and she is, she's at home getting treatment, but she was in the hospital and she, she gets a lot of support from people on TikTok and she has, I don't know, hundreds of thousands or a million followers. Um, how helpful, what do you think about that? Like somebody sharing their journey, showing what they're eating, showing about their meal, showing their meal plans. You know, uh, I, I, I don't think I can give a generalized statement on my reflection to that since I haven't followed her to see, but at certain times of my life, that would not be helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, for people that don't fit the criteria of the weight that might be invalidating for them, Mm -hmm. for that individual, that might be very important for their recovery to have that accountability. It seems to be, be, and she's just the sweetest person. Yeah. So for her, it's quite powerful. I think people, interestingly enough, like to watch people eat and gain weight, which is interesting to me. They like the YouTube videos I see a lot is that in recovery, this is my concern in my, in, in what I see for recovery, whether it's people that are trying to improve their, their eating so that they lose weight. So there's a lot of weight loss YouTube videos. Mm -hmm. And I see a lot of hits on those. People love to watch people kind of like Biggest Loser back in the day. It's not healthy. And some people are healthy about it, but I'm like, "Ah, you know, that message to me is great. I like the people, so I'll follow it because I like the person. And my brain might filter out some of the other messages because I just really like this person. For the eating disorder recovery, again, some people might need that platform in order to heal themselves. And they are giving a voice, right? They are doing it. They are speaking their truth. And we also need to hear the people that have a journey that might look different and they don't have to publish it. You know, there were aspects of my recovery where I needed to be alone in with my treatment team, not like alone and isolated, but in a way that was kind of doing it without external feedback. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And my concern was sometimes when I would get to a weight that was then considered healthy and the people stopped showing so much attention that could cascade into a problem. So there's multiple where it can't be generalized because I'm afraid if this person gets to a weight, people will start talking about that. And if that person is able to cope with that and has grown with her recovery, then that may not be a problem. Mm. Um, And I do hear some people that are in recovery channels that will take themselves away from the recovery channel as their body changes completely fine. So I want that person to have permission to do that and say, I was on social media. I had a ton of followers. And now for me, I need to step back because it's an important part of my journey to step back. Mm -hmm. And then it's okay if people stop following me when I'm living a healthy life and they don't find it as fascinating, it doesn't mean anything about me. It was, they had some fascination with watching somebody eat and gain weight, which is interesting to me. I'll just say interesting, but I see it a lot. And, um, as a person that I was not in the public eye, I was not sharing my messages and I started sharing when I, felt ready as long as the people are doing what's authentic to themselves mm-hmm. and being mindful of others and, and how they're conveying their message. Just like me, you know, I'm not going to share all the behaviors that I had 
with an eating disorder, I'm not going to share my weight. I'm not going to share the things that are not helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I, you know, if, if that captures a little bit of my answer there, then. Yeah, that's so nuanced and it's, it's so much more nuanced. It's so much more, you know, complex. It's, it's interesting too. And I think the main thing is, is, you know, you have beautiful like self-awareness. It's been a journey for you of self-discovery. It sounds like getting to your true self. And so to give everyone permission to prioritize themselves, their self-care, their self-worth, their self-compassion and be okay. Like you're not obligated to share it with the world. You don't have to change, you know, you, you don't cause and control it for anyone else. And if you don't want to show up on social media, don't, if you don't want to talk about it, don't. Yeah. And if you're posting every Monday and you don't want to post on a Monday, then don't. I know anorexia is so perfectionistic and rigid that if we created rules as applies to social media posting, I know for me, I would get in that trap of like, it's a people pleasing, right? You want to make sure that everyone has the content, but as long as that person's saying, I'm doing this for me and if other people benefit, then great. But if, you know, just regulate it that way and say, if I am bound to the rules of now my social media and it's no longer helpful, I've had a friend that was on social media eating disorder and it wasn't eating disorder recovery. She just happened to have an eating disorder and would talk about it. Mm -hmm. And it got to a point where, she's no longer on YouTube. And I'm wondering, you know, it seemed like there were comments that weren't helpful for her and Mm -hmm. she has just transitioned. And I love that. And she was able to create that boundary. I miss her on YouTube because I loved her and to follow her little family. Uh (laughs) But I respect also, she's not there for me. She was there for her and it was no longer valuable to her. It was creating more stress than it was benefit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You get to choose your own magical path and your healing is there's nothing more important than that than healing yourself so well this has been an incredible conversation i could talk to you for hours uh we'll definitely have you back on the ime community uh youtube video and podcast and um i want to ask you what i always ask everyone who's a guest on this podcast because i my whole philosophy is make it fun to get it done. Mm-hmm. So what do you do for fun? Other than oh, hanging out with your dog. <laughs> yeah, my dog, should we say a little picture of him right now? He's chilling. Oh, well. I, I had to take off his collar so that he wasn't jingle jangling. But <laughs> I like to post funny pictures of my dog and give them captions that are hilarious. But I also recently started in this class that's dedicated to fun. It's from Melissa Lozoff. She's an actress. She's in North Carolina and it's available online. People can sign up for it. It's uh, movie makers, I think is her, uh, is her business. Um, Am I not, I'm hoping that that's right. But Melissa Lozoff, L-O-Z-O-O-L-O-Z-L-O-Z-O-F-F. Oh my gosh. She's going to be so upset if she knows I got her name wrong, but uh, adults can sign up for that. Well, she'll just uh, laugh about it, right? <laughs> you might laugh about it. Yeah. So she, it's all about just using, bringing out that playfulness. So similar with like, I might do a sport that I'm horrible at because I know I'm horrible at it. And I just think doing the things that we can just bring play back into our life. Mm-hmm. Um, so fun. Yeah. And then just really being mindful, you know, I went for many years of taking out my stress on 
my body. So I just move in a way that is peaceful and trying to be more, I know mindful is, you know, we use that term a lot, but it's so helpful in just really taking in our scenery mm. uh, and appreciating life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sounds like you're just on this really beautiful healing, self-discovery journey. And I love it. Yeah, it's Martha Beck, right? It's a little science, it's a lot of science and a little woo and they meet and it's beautiful. Yeah, she's awesome. Beautiful human being. Okay, well, we thank you so much. Tell us where uh, we can connect again, your website and then the Kevin MD articles. Yeah, my website is that jillianrigertcoaching.com. Uh, my Kevin MD articles have a link to my LinkedIn. And then okay. I have Facebook, which is just Jillian Rigert and would love to be connected. Yay. Okay. Well, thank you. We appreciate it. And everyone have an awesome day. Make sure that you um, check out IME community. The um, podcast and YouTube video she was talking about was the one I did on Valentine's day that self-kindness is the key to your health goals and self-kindness and self-trust go together like peanut butter and jelly. So that's what my whole goal is to create a more self-compassionate approach so you can get to self-love superpower. But for teens struggling with weight and body image and your and parents of teens, don't forget to join IME community. Check out the site. There's tons of free stuff, but the membership's awesome. So you get my coaching. So, all right. Thank you all so much. Have a great day. Thank you for tuning in to the IME community podcast, where self-love is your superpower. The content of this podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Carla Lester and is not intended as, and shall not be understood as, a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The opinions shared reflect the host and guest and do not represent an organization or medical group. Always seek the advice of your physician or therapist if you have concerns about your health. And please, like and subscribe to the IME Community Podcast. Share IME with your friends and go to imecommunity.com to join the member community. Don't forget to follow IME on social.